So if you would turn uh, with me, just past those uh, verses to Galatians 4. Uh, and this evening I'm going to read verses 8 to 20. Uh, Galatians 4, 8 to 20 in the church uh, green Bibles, that's page 1170, and in the large print, 1810. Galatians 4, uh, verses 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me. For I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if I, you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. And the title for this message is Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Uh, at lunchtime uh, today, I was asked um, what I'm preaching on this evening. Uh, I seem to be asked that every single week at lunchtime by someone in our house. Uh, and I explained uh, the theme uh, of this sermon as, as not turning back from Jesus. Uh, and then I was asked uh, by Hewa. Uh, if we are singing a song that he knows in Farsi, that we might know in English. And the song is this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Well, I thought it was a bit late on Sunday afternoon to quickly email uh, the musicians. Um, but uh, many of you will know that song. And it does sum up, really, uh, what Paul is saying in this passage, no turning back. I used to sing that song in Sunday school, uh, and I remembered it uh, as a teenager, and I remember it now. And I remember it well as a teenager because there were times when I was seriously tempted to turn back. 
there is uh, pressure, isn't there, uh, for all of us, uh, sometimes from our families who ask us to turn back, sometimes temptation from sin, challenges of living the Christian life, many reasons why we may feel like turning back. And that song uh, commits us to following Jesus. And tonight, in a wonderful way, we also uh, come to the Lord's table because there is another verse to that song which says, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Now, perhaps some of you here this evening need to hear this word. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Don't abandon Jesus Christ and all that we have in him for something which we read about really in Isaiah 44, a worthless idol. Don't turn back. Now, up to this point in Galatians, Paul has explained how we are saved by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law. He's told us that in chapters 1 and 2. And then from chapter 3, he's begun to dig deeper into why we can know that is true. And last time we were in Galatians, two weeks ago, we came to what really is the, the, the mountain top of the book of Galatians where we were shown the amazing reality of how we are no longer slaves to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, but we are adopted sons of the Father in heaven who we can cry out to, Abba Father. And really Paul's been, been taking us um, from chapter 3, kind of up this mountain of, and showing us different views of how we're justified by faith, and we get to the peak and the wonderful news that we are adopted sons and heirs of God the Father. And it is a wonderful truth. We are no longer slaves. We are sons. And it's in that context, with that amazing truth, that Paul comes and basically says, why on earth? Why on earth would you go back to your old life when you have this amazing family of God that he has put you into, where God is your father, that you are in a relationship with him, that your sins are forgiven, that you've been given the Holy Spirit, that you have life in heaven to come, an eternal life that begins now, why would you turn back? And so when Paul says, don't turn back, he's doing so from the context of the wonderful truth we've just looked at in chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Do you see? Why would you turn back? And so verses 8 to 20 really is about don't turn back because we've got such a wonderful uh, relationship with God and a wonderful gospel that we have in Christ. So in these verses, uh, with Paul uh, telling the Galatians not to turn back, we, we're going to look at three different things. Uh, we're going to look at Paul's problem with the Galatians. We're going to look at Paul's plea to the Galatians and then Paul's passion for the Galatians. Paul's problem, Paul's plea, and Paul's passion. So first of all, let's look at Paul's problem in verses 8 to 11. His big problem with the Galatians is their desire to go back to slavery because they've listened to the arguments of the false teachers who have come their way. Uh, we see this especially in verses 8 and 9. Uh, Paul, in verse 8, shows them, in verse 8, their spiritual state 
before and after following Jesus. And after doing that, he comes to his problem. So their spiritual state, formerly, when you did not know God. Do you notice that in verse 8? Formerly, so before you were putting your faith in Jesus, you did not know God. Uh, the word for know here is to understand, is to, to see clearly. There was a time when we didn't understand God. We didn't grasp who God really is. We didn't see clearly what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And at that time, Paul says, we were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. The gods, small g, notice that there in your Bibles, being talked about here are idols. As we saw in our reading from Isaiah 44, these idols are not real. They have no power to save. Some of us, before following Christ, did worship such idols. Perhaps some of you here worshipped statues or icons or other religious um, jewelry or paraphernalia. There are some here that, that did that. But for many of us, those idols took on the form of something else. Money, sex, self-centered living, even family or friends or reputation or fame. For some, there were addictions that we were enslaved to. An idol is anything that we're trusting in to bring us salvation in this life or the next. Anything at all. What is it that you're trusting in to give you salvation and satisfaction in this life or the next? If it's not Jesus, it is an idol. And we are, people are enslaved to those idols. And those idols lead to death and hell. And all of us were enslaved to them before we knew Christ, before we knew God. So if you're not a believer... Of, of Jesus Christ, if you're not following him right now, you are enslaved to an idol. Even if you're not aware of it, you are enslaved to an idol. That's what Paul tells us here. However, there is a change in our spiritual state. Do you see the change in verse 9? But now. Do you see that? But now. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Now the word for know here is a different word from before. The know here means a knowledge or understanding in terms of a relationship. So it's more than just understanding intellectually or seeing clearly. This is an intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge. In fact, in older versions of the Bible, this word for no, for no was used to describe sexual intimacy. It means we're not in a, uh, it means we're not in a, a, a relationship with God just in our heads, but it's a relationship in our hearts. In other words, it's what Paul described before as a relationship of Abba Father. An intimate relationship, familial relationship with God as our Father. So we, when we didn't know who God was, we were slaves to false gods. But now that we are in a now we are in a relationship with Him. But more than that, see here in verse nine, we are known by God. That is, 
God has chosen us to be in this relationship. That is the nature of adoption, which we looked at in verses 1 to 7. It is the initiative of the Father to choose his children, and God has done that. You, brother or sister, are an adopted child of God. We looked at that before. Wonderful news, isn't it? That's the relationship. We know God intimately. He is our Father. And in that relationship, we have the benefits of being members of his household, the Holy Spirit living in us, a place in the family of God, a future home in glory ahead of us. So Paul has shown us our slavish past, the adoptive present, and so now he comes to his problem. Do you notice the problem at the end of verse 9? How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Do you see? He's shown us what we were. He's shown us what we are, and this is his problem. How can you turn back? Now, this sounds a lot like the Israelites in the Old Testament. Do you remember? They were freed from slavery in Egypt, and it was an amazing, miraculous deliverance. They were given bread from heaven. God was with them. But when life was not going according to plan, some of them were hankering for their old life in Egypt, forgetting how miserable it was. Uh, notice an example in Numbers chapter 14. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and, and go back to Egypt. Do you see the similarity there? They want to go back to slavery. Now for the Galatians, the weak and miserable forces that they were encouraged to turn back to was the Jewish law. In verse 10, we see how specifically they were observing the calendar of the Jewish law slavishly. Sabbath days, festivals, jubilee years, and so on. There was a religious formalism that had no life. And Paul is perplexed, a word we'll see at the end of the passage, that they would have such a wonderful situation in their relationship with God for them only to want to turn back to those forces that were weak and miserable. Those forces were weak because they cannot save and miserable because they cannot satisfy. Weak because they cannot save, miserable because they cannot satisfy. And they are enslaving in every negative sense of the word. Those forces of our life before Christ, they drive you hard. They never give you what you need. They won't let you go. And they lead you to death. Why would you turn back? Why would we want to be enslaved by them all over again? And that's the question for all of us. Perhaps there are some here tonight who are considering turning back to sinful patterns of behavior that you have left behind. Pornography or gossiping or 
laziness or lack of commitment and so on. Perhaps you think, well, I want to go back to those things. Perhaps some of you are considering some new pattern of sinful behavior, but really it's still turning back because all these idols come from the same place, from hell. All end up leading away from Christ. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I want to go that way. And perhaps some of you here this evening are considering abandoning following Jesus altogether. Why would you do that when you have so much in Christ? Why would you do that when you read verses 1 to 7 of our adoption into his family? Why would you do that when he's given us eternal life? Why would you turn back to a weak and miserable force that cannot save and leads to death? Why would you do that? Well, in verse 11, Paul fears that he's wasted his efforts on them, which he feels would be the case if they turn back. And we can understand that sense of frustration when there's people that we have worked with, people that we've led to Christ, people that we've welcomed into membership, people that we've baptized, who show that they never really believed. But notice Paul's concern is not for his wasted time. Notice in verse 11 how he fears for them. His fear is not that he's wasted his life sharing the gospel with these people. His fear is that he shared the gospel with them and it's been wasted on them by their rejection of Jesus, which will lead them to slavery and God's judgment. And what we get here is the sense of heartbreak for the loss of those who turn back. And sadly, haven't we seen in our church many times people who follow Jesus and turn back? And it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Not because we feel like we've wasted our time, but we fear for them to have rejected Christ. That's the sense that Paul has here in these verses. That's Paul's problem. And so verses 12 to 16, to deal with this problem, we come to Paul's plea. Uh, notice the language of pleading in verse 12. Paul says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, so far in Galatians, Paul has actually not given any commands. He's given lots of rebuke, but he's not given any command the first one is found in verse 12. What is Paul pleading? Become like me, for I became like you. In what way are the Galatians to become like Paul? Well, in the context of Galatians, he means here that they are to be free from the law, the Old Testament law, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are to continue trusting Jesus for their salvation. Now, Paul became like them 
by being willing to let go of the laws that as a Jewish person he was used to but would stop him having fellowship with non-Jewish people. So in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 20 to 21, Paul says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Now in these verses, the Galatians are those who are not, uh, not, they don't have the law, they're not Jewish. And so Paul set aside some of the regulations of the Jewish law that as a Jewish man he would follow in order to share the gospel with these Gentile Christians and to show them that he's free from those regulations. They are not what save. And so in that sense, Paul became like them, a Gentile Christian not under the law. The plea that Paul's making in uh, this verse is that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, just like Paul does. And it's the same plea we make with you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same plea that we make when someone we see and love is turning back. We say to them, put your faith in Jesus Christ. I wouldn't normally preach a sermon and say, become like me. In fact, I don't think, not normally, I would never (laughs) preach a sermon and say, just be like me. But there is one sense where I do say be like me, because I've put my faith in Jesus Christ and so should you. Because that's the only way that we're saved. And in fact, that's the only way I would say be like me. Now, the Galatians did do that one time. In the middle of verse 12 to verse 14, Paul shows what they did before. This faith in Jesus Christ was shown in how they accepted Paul in the first place when he first came to them. Uh, Look at uh, uh, middle of verse 12 to 14. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Now, we're not told here much about the illness that brought Paul to the area. Uh, We do know that it was used by God to bring the gospel to the area. But we do know that in Roman times, illness or disfigurement were causes of people to be rejected. Uh, They were seen as a telltale sign of divine retribution. That wasn't right, but that was the cultural view. But more likely, what was going on here is that the appearance of Paul was such that he was seen as a marked man. His body bore the marks of suffering. And so when people saw Paul coming into their church or coming into their area and saying, become like me, a Christian, they would look at him and say, become like you. Have you seen yourself, Paul? Have a look in the mirror. If that's what being a Christian is going to make me end up like, be looking like, I'm not sure I want to associate with you. But nevertheless, Paul was accepted, or rather his message was accepted. Paul was welcomed so much that it was as if he was an angel, or Jesus Christ himself. In verse 15, they cared so much for him that they would have torn out their eyes if that would help him. Now some people think that Paul here is referring to having an eye problem, that was being his illness. 
More likely, he's using exaggerated language to show how much he was accepted by the Galatians. But the point really is that they, they accepted his message. They, they accepted the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul said was accepted by them. But now, look at verse 15. There's no blessing, it seems. He's not welcome. In verse 16, he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? When Paul first came, he shared the gospel. He rebuked them for their sin and they came to know Christ. But now he's rebuking them again. They are rejecting him. And I think when we're not Christians... And we hear the message that we are sinners. It can be hard to hear. But it is in hearing that message that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We heard that this morning. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. But in many ways, isn't it harder to hear of our sin when we are a Christian? Because when we are a Christian, we like to think sometimes, don't we, that, well, I'm not like that anymore. I'm better now. And so when come, someone comes to you and points out your sin when you are a believer, it can actually be much harder to hear than even when you were an unbeliever. Because we want to be seen to be righteous, don't we? Now Paul's plea to the Galatians was that they would keep putting their trust in Jesus and not turn back to slavery. But that message, that rebuke, made Paul disliked by the churches that he founded. They didn't want to hear that message. They didn't want to hear that they're sinners again. Yeah, we've got that, Paul. We're moving on now to a different message. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. None of us enjoy being told by someone that we are sinning and need to repent. But it is a necessary part of the Christian life. It's necessary that we are willing to accept rebuke from God's people without seeing them as our enemy. Now in one sense here in this passage, there is a rebuke from the church leader, Paul, that the church are to accept. And there are times when an elder might come and see you and give you a rebuke. How would you accept that? Would you get mad? Would you leave the church? Or would you be willing to accept rebuke when there is sin in your life? We should be. But more practically, even than that, I would ask you this. Have you got a Christian or Christians in your life that you are able and willing to receive rebuke from? Because all of us should have people like this that help us walk rightly with God. Uh, when I was a teenager, I became a Christian when I was uh, 11 years old. And uh, a couple years later, I had a friend that I led to Christ. My friend was called Ian. Uh, and we both were believers and were following Jesus. And later on in my, Christian, uh, in my teenage years, I was beginning to turn back. But my friend helped me follow Jesus. He came to me and he told me, Steve, 
What are you doing? This isn't right. Don't turn back. And a combination of him and later on Paula, help me to turn back to Jesus. God brought people in my life that helped me follow Jesus and were willing to tell me, Steve, you are wrong. And I thank God for those people. Have you got Christians in your life that you're willing to not see as an enemy, but see as a friend who will tell you, don't turn back? A friend might give a wound, but they can be trusted. It's the kisses from the enemy that you need to worry about. And we need to be concerned for one another's holiness and to love one another enough to speak into each other's lives and to plead with each other, like Paul does here, to keep putting our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the Galatians uh, were happy to talk theology with their Jewish false teachers. They were happy to, to talk about the Christian life And many of us perhaps love talking about Jesus with each other and talking theology with each other, but not willing to receive the challenge to put that into practice. There are many Christians who love to read and talk about faith, but not receive the challenge to live that faith out in a self-sacrificial way. We've got to be willing to hear from each other, don't turn back, Follow Jesus and be challenged. Are you prepared to be challenged? So we have Paul's problem with the Galatians, Paul's plea. And finally, we see Paul's passion. Now, Paul, in giving these hard truths to the Galatians, does so not because he is mean, not because he's some kind of dictatorial elder, but because he has a passion for God's people. And we're going to see what his passion is, but before we do, we see what passion the false teachers have. Do you notice in verse 17 what their passion is? Look at the verse. Those people, the false teachers, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Notice that the passion of the false teachers is to be loved by the people rather than to speak the truth. They are in the words of the Proverbs, enemies who give kisses. They are zealous, but for no good. Their agenda is alienation from Paul and the truth, and it is self-promotion. Now, we live in the day, don't we, of the celebrity pastor. Beware of those who are seeking a following and care more about being liked and followed than about the truth which you need to hear. Beware of any church leader, whether they're famous or not, who seeks approval and a following in a church. Beware of desiring this yourself. In fact, if you are never challenged by the preaching and teaching of God's word, if it never cuts you to the heart, if you never go away thinking, ouch, 
you should be wary. Because they are probably not preaching the truth or they're missing bits out. In verse 18, we see that it's a good thing to be zealous if the purpose is good. If, if you're zealous and passionate about serving Christ, about loving your neighbor, about reaching the lost and so on, well, they're good things we should be passionate about. But a false teacher also is only passionate about those things in public. Notice in verse 18, Paul says to be zealous, not just when I'm with you. Don't be zealous don't be passionate for Jesus only when I'm watching you. Don't just be passionate for Jesus on Sunday morning. True zeal, true passion for Christ is not only a public zeal, but a private one as well. It's, it's far easier to look holy in front of others where, than it is to be holy when no one is seeing. I mean, the Pharisees, they look the business, Right? But they were the most unholy people of all. Who you are in private is who you are. Remember that. So the false teacher's passion is to have a following. For them to be the most important people in the life of the church is their passion. Paul's passion is very different. Do you notice it in verse 19? My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What's Paul's passion? Christ being formed in you. The false teachers effectively wanted them formed in the people. Paul's passion is Christ to be formed in the people. That's his great desire. Christ being formed in them. For them to be Christ-like. To be in the image of Christ, to look like Christ, to act like Christ, to speak like Christ. And Paul is so passionate about it, he describes it as like being in childbirth. Obviously, Paul's not been in childbirth. But what he's saying is he's willing to go through the pain of rebuking them, of shepherding them, and so on, until Christ is formed in them. And notice how he calls them dear children. Now, in Galatians, he's called them all sorts of names. But here is his true heart. He is his, they are his dear children. The rebuke from Paul is from a man who loves them dearly and is at great pains to help them be more like Jesus. What is your great passion for the church here in Pelsall? I hope you have a passion for the church. If there's no passion, that's perhaps a different sermon, certainly a different problem. But what is it you want most in this church? Is it that we would be really big? Is it that you would be really comfortable? Is it that you can get really great sermons? Is it that you can go away with a really nice feeling as if you've had some kind of injection every Sunday? Or is it that you would be passionate about seeing one another have Christ formed in us? That's what we should be passionate about. We should be passionate about each other looking like Jesus. But the thing is, if we're passionate about that, it's going to be painful. Like childbirth. And the reason Paul uses childbirth 
is because childbirth is painful for a time, but there is great joy that comes at the end of it. So let's think of the pain. If we're, if we're passionate about Christ being formed in one another, we are going to have to go through the pain of those difficult conversations that we've just talked about. Isn't it painful to have those conversations with people? It's not easy. I mean, if you've got a, a, a real joy about going to people and telling them they're wrong, then you are wrong. <laughs> it is the pain of sacrifice in time that it takes to sit with someone and, and read the scripture with them and advise them and mentor them. That takes time and it can be painful. It is the pain to go through the letdowns and the disappointments and the not being listened to over and over again. It is the pain of seeing others flourish and even do things that you want to be able to do. It is the pain of allowing people to grow in service by having them serve in ways that you know you could do better than them, but hold back to enable them to grow. Even the pain of allowing people to make mistakes. It is the pain of investing in relationships, in letting your guard down and being vulnerable. It is painful to see Christ being formed in one another. But when we see Christ being formed in us, there is also immense joy. Now, we won't see the work complete until heaven, but praise God, we do see the joy of progress over time. Sometimes over years, always very slowly, but there is such joy when we see people grow in Christ, and we do see it. It's not a week-by-week -week thing. We can't get to the end of a day or the end of a meeting with someone and say, right, I've seen them grow today. But over years, we do see it happen. Uh, for me, I just think in particular of our, of our young people. Uh, teenagers are a joy, like a joy. We love working with the teenagers, but it's a challenge. Uh, Paula and I arrived here 10 years ago, and we had a group of teenagers that are now adults. And there were Friday and Sunday nights that me and Paula would go home with our heads in our hands. <laughs> like we were like, oh my word, what are we doing with these kids? Or rather, what are these kids doing to us? I didn't have this much gray hair when I arrived. I'm convinced there is a reason for it. There was times when it was painful. But now, we have the joy of seeing them serving Jesus in wonderful ways. Uh, we've done weddings. Uh, we've written references to churches and Christian organizations that snap these guys up. We've seen them elected to office and other things. It's wonderful to see what God has done and how Christ has been formed in them over years. We're proud of you guys. But times it was a pain. <laughs> but we see that not just with teenagers, we see that with all of us, don't we? Paul was a pastor with a passion not to get a following himself, but to see Christ formed in his people. And may that be a passion for all of us, not just the church leaders. That should be the passion for every one of us. Well, in the final verse, in verse 20, Paul's desire there is to speak with them face to face. 
And the reason he wants to speak with them face to face is because he wants to see Christ formed in them. And he knows that face to face is far better than a letter. Even if his letter is the book of Galatians. Now for us, we need to have the courage to be in each other's lives physically. If Christ is going to be formed in one another, we need to be in one another's lives, not at a distance, not with a text message relationship or WhatsApp relationship or whatever it might be. We need to be living life together. Just practically, if you are going to rebuke someone, don't do it over an email or a text. It's always misread. Well, maybe not always, but usually. Have the courage to speak to someone. Because Paul says if, if they could just see him, if they could just see him, he said, I could change my tone. What he means is, if you could see me, you would see how much I love you. And we wouldn't have to speak in, in this kind of a way. He was convinced that, that they would repent. Loving one another in this way, a passion to see one another grow in Christ-likeness is God's means of stopping each other turning back to our old ways. We need one another, don't we? We need one another. So may we be those who are serious about Christ being formed in one another so that we don't turn back, but rather we keep going. And I'd just like to finish by, by saying to pray for us as elders as we lead the church. Uh, Paul was a, a, a pastor here. Pray for us that our passion would be that Christ is formed in you. That we would not desire a following. That we would not desire the applause of our congregation. But that our big desire would be that Christ is formed in you. And may you know that we love you as we see that happen in one another's lives. That's what we want for you, for Christ to be formed in you. Brothers and sisters, we've, we're following Jesus. There's no turning back. Don't turn back. Don't do it. Follow Christ. What we're going to do now is not turn back, but we're going to turn to the cross and focus our minds on Jesus. And so to begin uh, doing that and to, to think about his passionate love for us, uh, we're going to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, before we come to the Lord's table. So let's stand uh, and sing together.
please uh, take your seats.